This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We are uh, bringing it to you again. Three hours of fun, of interesting information, helping you see the world hopefully a little more positively. Also, just trying to give you the tools to understand what is going on in your world. Today, we will be uh, doing a a little uh, discussion about Russia. Do you feel like you have a clue what's really going on when people keep talking about the Ukraine and Vlad? (laughs) Vlad. Do you really understand uh, how they feel about us? Apparently, 57, 58 percent of people in Russia see the United States as their number one threat, which is interesting to me because I don't feel that threatening, quite honestly. And so we'll be talking about that uh, a little bit later in this hour. Uh, in the second hour, we're going to get into uh, unproductive busyness. Why are we all so prone to just keep moving and stay busy, even if the busyness actually is less effective. We'll be talking about a Harvard Business Review study on that. And in the third hour, putting the happiness back in the young, uh, kind of the millennials. They've got a really interesting little uh, paradigm going on that might be impacting them. So we'll be getting to that as well. Incredibly good news, by the way. Great news. Uh, went to the doctor yesterday, my podiatrist. Apparently, podiatrists, a lot of older people have foot problems because I sat in the waiting room with a bunch of older people. Nothing, I'm not saying anything about older, older, but I'm like, wow, this is where I am now. I'm a grandfather to be, and I'm sitting in a waiting room that smells like mentholatum. What, what did it feel like being surrounded by your peers? Honestly, felt great because I knew I'm at the top of my game. I could take anyone in that waiting room. I could <laughs> You're take them sizing up. up everyone else in there. No, we're actually really good friends. In fact, we're we're playing bridge this Friday. <laughs> then pinochle. It's really a cool thing. But I go. I went in and I my foot is fixed. Two and a half years of plantar fasciitis fixed. It's fixed. Yeah. He taped my foot. That's what I've been doing wrong. You haven't been taping your foot. No. You know how athletes before the big game, they, you always see them and they're getting taped up? Got to get taped. I've never been taped. I need to be taped yeah. every morning. So I need one of the producers. Terry, you need to sort Whoa. this out. Okay. I need one of the producers to tape my foot every day. I've been looking for things for Ben to do. Okay. He's been doing <laughs> spreadsheets for us and you kind of documenting some of the things. We can tape your foot. This doctor is a, chi- a genius with tape. He's a taping genius. And he just taped my foot and then he says, try this. Let's go for this for one week. And if this works, then we're going to get you some orthotics, which are inserts for my shoes. Yes. Which I've known I should get forever. Right. And while you're there, you can get maybe a lift. I can get a lift. Get a couple inches. and <laughs> Get, you know. Build your self-esteem a little more. <laughs> get a little lift. My, my right shoe needs about, you know. You're Half inch up. higher than my left. You're shirt. lopsided a Until bit there. Until everyone notices that you're wearing platforms, and then yeah, that's kind of weird. But taping, uh, put that on the put that on the memo for the next meeting. Gotcha. Because I we'll want to be taped that. every morning. Would you like a volunteer, or would you like an assignment made? 
I think I think you ought to pass it around to everyone so everyone gets a shot at it. Oh, really? Rotate it. Uh-huh. That's interesting. There's some jobs that should everybody James, needs. To should try. James be involved in the rotation? I want Jimmy Dean to be the first one. Okay. Jimmy Dean, you're up first. He does have a delicate touch. Yes, he does. <laughs> Very warm hands, by the way. So uh, Jimmy Dean will be working on that tomorrow. Hey, David Letterman, how cool is that? He did. He, I really, I grew up watching him. I grew up watching Carson. I, he's one of the reasons I wanted to do radio is because it's just he's just funny but dry. But you know, some people loved him and hated him, and he's just a good guy. And he he went out with a bang. Here's your favorite clip from last night's farewell monologue. Let's hear it. Or one of them. That was good. That was great. Seems shorter than I remember it. Gentlemen, welcome to the Late Show. I want to tell you one thing. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's beginning to look like I'm not going to get the Tonight Show. I don't think. <laughs> so there was that. I love he that. mentioned the Tonight. You know, Tonight Show. He talked about uh, what when they walked first walked into the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yep. And how it was just a dump. He said the the rats were kind of stooped over because they were overworked <laughs> with how how bad the bad it was. He he got so. he was disrespected. He thought by Johnny Carson because he didn't get the Tonight Show. Yeah, but again, and that he always kind of took he had that edge, and he was very self deprecating. He talked about his heart issues. Do you remember that? I mean, there's so much history. Yeah. And there's another. You got another clip. Another clip. Well, here's some uh, statistics. Uh, Paul and I have uh, been doing this show 33 years, and uh, that's 6,028 shows. It's a lot of shows. Uh, <clears throat> Earlier today, we got a call from Stephen Hawking, and he, bless his heart, had done the math because he's a, a genius and stuff, and 6,028 shows, and he ran the numbers, and he said it works out to about eight minutes of laughter. 6,028 shows. Can you imagine that? No. Like, yeah. 6,000 shows. What have you done 6,000 times? I don't want to hear about it. It's amazing. I have no idea. I've probably woken up. Mm. How, many, how many years is that? 33 years. So I'm not that, that far past 6,000 days old. I know. Amazing. Now, you're well past it, so it's fine. Pardon? Huh? Come again? So, yeah. I, my foot is. And every every late night host went ahead and did a tribute that's cool they, they did the top 10 was basically a bunch of jimmy kimmel stars. jimmy kimmel the other night did one i uh, showed all, all these photographs of he had a car with the license plate his first car said late night on the license plate did it really a birthday cake he, he had like a birthday party it was kind of a, a david letterman type thing he was just his hero he loved watching that that's why he got into this business he and, and and he uh, just really these tributes that you're like, really, these people actually watched him. But if you think about it, comedians, you're yeah. going to watch other comedians. And at, as you're growing up as a kid, those are, you know, it was Johnny Carson and then David Letterman. And that was really who was on TV at the time. And they, they say a lot of people, maybe more than probably any other late night host, were a lot of comedians were deeply affected by Letterman, maybe more affected than most because – yeah. Of his style. Well, he was more, felt like probably one of them where Carson kind of was uh, yeah. accused of being aloof. Well, and also he was uh, he was on late night for so long that he had, he could kind of be more, 
of his his oh of more of his real comedy yeah. rather than where Carson was yeah. trying to. It's amazing. I mean, I just I, I don't know whether you like him or not, man. Thirty three years in that industry, and yeah. especially. You know, because he also offended. For years, he was a pretty mean guy. A lot of people yeah. wouldn't go back on his show, and he'd always joke about how they won't come back on his show. I mean, he made fun of Oprah for years before, and now she's in his final top ten list and stuff. But he made fun of her, like, teasing because she'd never come on the show. So, huge deal. Congrats to him. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can be on 33 years. 6,028 shows. 6,000. It's a lot. It's a lot. That would, if For us, it would equal about two minutes of humor. If we get that. <laughs> Other things that happened yesterday. Yes. Rand Paul lasted 10 and a half hours as he did a quasi-filibuster yeah. of the Patriot Act. Which he, he doesn't have the votes to ever get passed, so he's just making a statement. He's trying to hold out, don't you think? Is he running for president? It seems like he might be running Is for president. Is that what that was? I, it might feel? be. Because it says here that he carefully timed his protest for Wednesday when it would fill a lull in uh-huh. proceedings and not delay any important votes on the NSA program or the trade bill. So he's not making anyone no, mad. He's not ticking anybody off. He's making a point. And he's gonna, I bet he'll run out the clock to Memorial Day. So that way, because everyone wants to leave town, and then they're going to be gone all next week. Yeah. So this, then he can go back during the memorial hiatus and look like a hero again. You know. So he, he started at one eighteen p.m. Eastern, made it to eleven forty eight p.m. Eastern. Oh, how horrible! Just standing there. It's like a telethon. Yeah. It without gets, any money being made, it gets ridiculous. Well, he did. He did uh, step away as other senators stepped in to uh, fill his. Oh, he just his found, shoes. Yeah, he found a few helpers so he could some use the restroom. That's right. But then he came back and kept yeah. going for 10 hours. So that happened. It was probably on C-SPAN, mm-hmm. if, if you missed oh, it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> you they had play-by-play play on C-SPAN. There's probably a video somewhere. ISIS fighters entered the ancient city of Syria. No. Or uh, Syrian city of Palmyra. Palmyra. Excuse me. On Wednesday, putting 2,000-year-old ruins at risk. That's a big deal. That's the second city in a week. Yep. They took Ramadi over the weekend. And this one's the one that's got all these uh, ruins and, you know, ISIS is kind of known for ruining ruins. They're yes. ruin ruiners. Those buildings are not representing us, so we'll blow them up. Again, it seems like we're losing this war. Maybe not. If but. you listen to the Defense Department, they try to put a happy spin on it. Eh, we didn't want Palmyra. We're working on they it. Call it Palmyra. They called Palmyra. They didn't want that. They didn't want that one. Uh, also, uh, some reports have come out that over, on Sunday in uh, Ramadi, uh, ISIS lit up 30 car bombs. Oh, boy. Ten of which were as big or bigger than the Oklahoma City bombing. Holy cow. That brought down buildings. They're just causing mm-hmm. chaos and just destroying things. So that's uh, – it almost feels like you wonder if they can – they feel like they're going to hold on to these areas or if they even care. Because yeah. you take them over, blow them up, and if we lose them, eh, whatever, they're going to get rubble back. So Amazing. It doesn't – I don't know. California Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency for Santa Barbara County on Wednesday following oh, a massive oil tragic. spill. Officials say they originally said it was twenty thousand gallons. There now it's one hundred five thousand gallons. <sighs> the oil stretches nine miles in total along the Southern California coast. The spill began when a two-foot pipeline burst and leaked crude petroleum into a culvert that ran into the ocean for several hours before it was shut off. It's still unknown exactly how much was spilt, but an estimated twenty barrels of oil were recovered from the Pacific Ocean. Another one hundred barrels were re- retrieved at the spill site, so mm. back up on land, according to Santa Barbara. So, yeah, there's animals. There's people trying to go out and help the animals. They're telling them, don't do that. Just tell us. We'll go out yeah. there with our equipment and Stay be able away to help from, them. But yeah. it's a mess. And oh, it's, it's just, tragic. Because, well, again, Santa Barbara, I've been there a ton, and they 
that is like their number one resource is that ocean, that space. And they've had they've had a disaster years ago. Right. So it's already kind of in the minds of the people up there. And oh, it's back, folks. It's back. So um, again, it's just news. News can just be pretty negative. But then you come listen to the show and we'll give you some ideas, some tools. We've got a great guest coming up, Dr. Jeff Hardy. He's a professor here at Brigham Young University. We wanted to bring somebody in that had a clue about Russia. They seem like such a strange, um, I don't know, I guess, world player. We, we don't know if we can trust them. They, they're popping up in submarines all over the place. You hear about a Ukraine airplane crash. Russia says they're not involved in a war with Ukraine or for Ukraine, and yet they are. What's going on with all of this? We're going to be talking to Dr. Jeff Hardy about Russia, trying to understand what is the deal with Russia, and uh, are they friend or foe? We'll find out when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love this song. Hunt for Red October. Maybe that's not the best theme. We have to first figure out what's going on with Russia before we turn it into a Hunt for Red October theme. Hey, uh, on the show today, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, and he is an assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history here at Brigham Young University. We wanted to pick his brain. He is an expert on Russia and it's such an interesting uh, situation. First of all, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's great to have somebody that has a clue because, you know, we – I was raised uh, thinking, you know, the USSR, Soviet Union, spawn of darkness, the Death Star. And then we have this Mr. Uh, President Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Then the next thing I know when I'm a 21-year-old, boom. Changed. Yeah. Now absolutely. they're our friend, they're our ally. But now here, 25 years later, uh, some of the latest uh, studies show that uh, the relationships between the United States and the Russian government is the worst they've been in 25 years. In fact, in a recent article on Russia and America, Russians, 59% of Russians see the United States as a threat. That's up from 47% in 2007. Thirty-one percent of those same people surveyed believe that the U.S. Uh, may be preparing for a possible invasion or occupation of Russia. Um, and yet, and even in the United States, 18 percent of people in the United States believe that Russia is our greatest enemy. So, oh, Jeff, teach us. Um, just teach us where, what is going on with Russia right now and, and where, where have they come from and, and are they – can they just not get rid of the old Soviet Union days? Tell us, fill us in. What's going on? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, uh, they were left with a an economy uh, that was basically a complete basket case. Uh, it was, the, the entire country was a rust belt, essentially. Uh, ref, economic reforms in the late Soviet period had not been successful. And this overnight transition to capitalism 
did not go smoothly. And we saw in the 1990s that Russia and most of the other post-Soviet republics uh, weathered a series of very serious economic crises uh, where the population became destitute, a large percentage of the population. Simultaneously, Russia saw its influence globally uh, recede substantially. Oh, yeah. Uh, The Soviet Union, of course, one of the great two superpowers of the world since World War II, uh, now thrust into a position that was ambiguous at best and uh, really became not quite a bit player on the world scene, uh, but it found itself – in the shadow of American global dominance. We're being broken into parts, really, right? That's certainly a big part of it, yeah. Yeah, and so and so it was – what did it turn into being? 13 states? What was it? 15. 13, 15, 15 republics. Republics. So it, this, this powerful union of one that was communist controlled, I guess, and, and, and then broken into then bits, 15, right. but without really any economy. I mean it was – they were all struggling. Yeah, certainly. By the end of the the 1990s, when President Putin took power, uh, democratically, I might add, uh, yeah, Russia was in a very difficult place. Uh, I I was in Russia in the late 1990s, and it was it was tragic. Uh, Health indicators were had completely collapsed. The average life expectancy for men at that time was in the mid 50s. Oh wow! If you can believe that. What was It, it in the United States comparatively? Do you know? Yeah, mid-70s. Was it really? Yeah, so a, a huge uh, difference, and, and that had been a complete collapse from the Soviet times when the, the Soviet mortality was in, in the 70s. Uh, we saw you know, homelessness, uh, mm. close to star- starvation, uh, the c- currency collapse, inflation. And, and so everything that we see now, we have to bear the 1990s in mind. Right. Uh, this point in time when democracy at its fullest was attempted and didn't produce the greatest outcomes uh, in terms of Yeltsin in particular. And capitalism was tried uh, and is still being practiced over there uh, to a great extent. Uh, but capitalism led to economic collapse. It, mm-hmm. it led to – uh, shrinkage of GDP, if I remember my numbers correctly, of around 40 percent. So all things kind of Western failed Russia, failed the, these these Russian republics. At least this is the narrative that the Russians construct yeah. about the 1990s. So uh, the West has that, – that in a way, so the West did fail them. Capitalism, democracy, even – I mean they keep parts of every – all of it, but they kind of do it right. their way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is why we continue to see nostalgia for the Soviet Union that in America we have a hard time understanding. Yeah, why would, you, would they be right? nostalgic for this repressive system? Uh, and yet this repressive system in the 1960s, 70s, and the early 1980s uh, was a system that had one of the greatest educational and scientific establishments in the world. It provided a good standard of living, if not great, for most of its citizens, as long as you kind of, you know, kept your head down a little bit. <laughs> Stay busy. Uh, the, the economy was very functional. Yeah. It wasn't 
great, but it was functional. Uh, international prestige. You know, they, they sent the man uh, to outer space. Yeah, right. And all right. this, uh, you know, winning chess championships, winning the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, and then the 1990s, this is complete uh, collapse on all layers of society. And, and so the Putin era that we continue to, to now witness today uh, is largely a reaction to the 1990s. Uh, and it's part of this yearning to be something great as they were before. Yeah. It's and it seems like he's he's kind of in a way idyllic I guess because he's a, it seems like a uh, Putin that is a mix of both of these worlds. He wants kind of the capitalistic power. I mean, we've heard stories about how he's one of the richest men in the world if you actually could know. Sure, yeah. And um but then also he he still seemingly has a supposed democracy where they're voting for people and yet political you know foes uh, are dying in as- alleged assassination attempts and things so it's a weird he it's a weird space and then the rest of us look at vladimir putin like why doesn't he have a shirt on you know what i mean and i so i'm assuming that some of that is just for home he's just trying to play the strong man Absolutely. Uh, most of what Putin does is for his domestic constituency. Yeah. Uh, Russia does remain a democracy. Uh, we have seen uh, some degree of election manipulation and fraud over the past several years. That notwithstanding, uh, Putin has been overwhelmingly popular yeah. uh, in his country and given a free and fair election at any point over the past 15 years, he would not have lost Yeah, he's those still elections. going to win. Correct. And I guess that's that's a throwback, right? He's a KGB guy, yet yes. he also uh, – is the economy doing better now? Uh, the economy since 2000 – well, from 2000 until 2008 uh, did very well. Yeah. Uh, and we saw the emergence of a – a fairly large and to some degree wealthy middle class in Russia, which which was remarkable, something that we didn't see in the 1990s, a middle class that could buy cars and that could go on vacation to Europe and to the Middle East, uh, that had a discretionary income. Uh, the 2008 global economic crisis uh, hit Russia fairly hard. Yeah. Uh, but as a result of some fairly prudent, we must say, economic policies pursued by Putin up to that point, uh, Russia had money stocked away. They they were ready, uh, as ready as you could be for this crisis. And they actually weathered it pretty Did they? well. Uh, more recently, we've seen the collapse of oil prices and oh, Western sanctions. Them, that has hurt them at a time when the rest of the global economy has been doing pretty good over the past couple of years. Mm. Uh, and so we've got kind of – we've entered a different economic period in yeah. Russia's history where they seem to be diverging from the rest of the world, again, based on oil prices and sanctions. We're speaking with Dr. Jeff Hardy, assistant professor of Russian and Eastern European history. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion. I want to find out about the Ukraine that uh, supposedly they're not – trying to take over and um and and crimea maybe just give us mm-hmm. some information there's just so much going on with russia trying to understand russia a little bit better here uh, bringing in the experts from brigham young university this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back after this break Welcome back, friends. This is the Red Army Choir. 
<laughs> sense of humor. They you totally have to appreciate did. that. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Jeff Hardy's joining us. He's a, a professor here at Brigham Young University in Russian and Eastern European history. We're just picking his brain about Russia because, to me, they're so – it's such an interesting um, culture. Gorbachev, a few months ago, did you, do you remember he came back and talked about how you know, disappointed he was right. in how the United States has handled it? I know uh, also um, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin was, was frustrated because the celebration for the, the Russian-German uh, war mm-hmm. – World War Two. World War in World War Two. We didn't we didn't come celebrate as much as the nobody came. None of the allies came to celebrate all of the work that Russia did during World War Two. Yeah, or they sent lower level delegations yeah. for the seventieth anniversary, which which Putin wanted to make a big show of. Twenty like twenty one million or something Russians died in that war. Yeah, and. So in a way, we're maybe we're not a good neighbor. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, <laughs> that could, case could be made. Absolutely, or a good friend, I guess. Talk to us about Ukraine. There was an airplane shot down in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, because of a, a war going on that apparently Russia is not involved in, but <laughs> apparently seems to be. Explain the whole Ukraine, Crimea, Russian thing because we're all hearing that in the news. Yeah, very long history here. the The very earliest Russian state was in fact centered in. Kiev, old Kiev and Rus, going all the way back to the 900s. Uh, and so Russia and Ukraine have been really intertwined in history. Uh, for several centuries, Ukraine was linked more with Poland politically. But then in the 1700s, we saw that Ukraine, uh, at least eastern Ukraine, was brought firmly within Russian control. Uh, Catherine the Great uh, annexed Crimea in the late 1700s, uh, and we saw much of the rest of what we now consider present-day Ukraine uh, come under Russian control at that point. It was part of the Russian Empire. In Soviet times, we saw for the first time the creation of a Ukrainian republic. This is not something that had ever existed before. I get in trouble sometimes with my Ukrainian friends for saying this, but it's, it's basically true. Uh, Because the Soviet Union had a very interesting nationality policy. Uh, That is, they were trying to build up the various small uh, national groups in the Soviet Union. The Belarusians, the Ukrainians, eventually the Lithuanians and Latvians, the Kazakhs and the Georgians. And so Ukraine enjoyed a fair amount of linguistic, cultural uh, development, even autonomy in Soviet times. Uh, that paved the way for Ukraine to be its own independent country in Mm -hmm. 1991. Now, Crimea is an interesting case. Crimea was always very Russian, uh, ethnically, linguistically. And it's just kind of like an appendage to the Ukraine, right? Right. So it's connected to Ukraine. It's it's a peninsula. It's it's barely just not connected to Russia Russia. on the eastern side. It's separated by a narrow strait, the Strait of Kerch. so it was always very Russian. The, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet was there. Uh, and in Soviet times, the Russians, or the Soviets, I should say, did something very interesting. In 1954, uh, Khrushchev, this is right after Stalin's death, transferred Crimea from the Russian Republic, 
Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Hmm. Now, in Soviet times, this didn't make all that much of a difference, right? Yeah. Because it's it's one country. Yeah, you're still together. But when the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, all of a sudden, this piece of Ukraine, which had always been part of Russia and very Russian in nature up until 1954, was now part of Ukraine. Now, Yeltsin didn't do much about this in the 1990s, uh, but we saw Russian nationalists uh, over the years began to talk about reclaiming Crimea, mm. uh, and President Putin apparently began to buy into this idea. Uh, and so when the Ukrainian crisis broke out, the recent uh, Maidan protests, uh, apparently he, he saw this as his moment, uh, that we can reclaim this territory that, that should, in his view, belong to Russia. Well, and it, the Crimeans it, apparently wanted it? Well, you know, a thorny question. So yeah. I, I simplified things a bit. So Crimea was always very Russian, continued to be so, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukrainian. There's also a sizable population of Tatars, uh, the Crimean Tatars. This is uh, a remnant of the uh, the Mongols, if you can believe it, wow. from way back in the, the 12th, 1300s. Yeah. Uh, they had been repressed in Soviet times, exiled to Central Asia immediately after World War II, ostensibly for collaboration with Nazi Germany, hmm. uh, allowed the survivors allowed to return in the late 1980s. Uh, they certainly did not want to see a Russian takeover of Crimea, hmm. uh, fearing another round of, uh, of Russian repression against them. And we have seen uh, to some extent some okay. of that since the Russian yeah. takeover. Uh, Ukrainians in Crimea, uh, smaller in number, and they certainly didn't want to see a Russian takeover either. Interesting. Uh, the more interesting thing is that most Russians, arguably, up to the uh, the Maidan protest crisis, uh, were not all that interested in Russian annexation either. Oh, it's something that caught them a bit off guard, although nationalist sentiment was quickly mo mobilized in the region. Yeah. How do you... It's so interesting because how – it really – you can't necessarily trust the information. So um, – but then you see I, – I would I was just assuming there's got to be some resources or some other valuable reason that Russia would want the Crimea and want – but it's really – so I guess it is. It's just – it's more of a historic grab than it is – a resource grab. Yeah, it's definitely historical. Uh, the other important point is that the Black Sea Fleet, the Soviet Black Sea Fleet, uh, continued to be located in Crimea okay. after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so Russia was renting this naval base from Ukraine. They were okay. paying a very yeah, large sum of money. strategic, man. Exactly. So it's, it's a strategic position. It's got mm -hmm. this military base that Ukraine was threatening to take away, that is to not renew the lease, to take it back from Russia. Oh boy. Uh, Russia saw this as a threat. We might also say that Crimea in Soviet times and even before Soviet times during the Russian Empire was a place where the Russian elite, uh, and not just the elite, I mean kind of your common working class uh, and, and young people as well in Soviet times would go to relax. This yeah. is their beach resorts. This is, you know, this is their Hawaii. It's a resort, yeah. So this is this so it, an a a vacation spot. It's our Hawaii. 
it, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's where you keep the fleet and you go have a nice retreat. Right. Um, Russia and China, there, there's a lot of talk now about the, they're strengthening some relationships. I mean, there's mm-hmm. obvious other issues that keep coming up. But it seems like they're kind of a natural fit. Russia has a lot of uh, oil. Correct. And uh, China has a lot of need for oil. What, where do you see that going? This is a relationship that has really developed under Putin. Uh, the Russian-China relationship was fraught with a lot of uh, tension, disagreement in Soviet times. As Americans, sometimes we saw, oh, the Soviets are communists, the Chinese are communists, they must be allies. Uh, in fact, from about 1960 onward, they were anything but allies. Yeah. They were kind of mortal enemies. There were border clashes and so forth. Uh, but Putin has taken great steps to mend these fences, to, to replay, repair the relationships. They've managed to uh, kind of uh, delimit the border in a couple of places uh, and we've got this new strategic, economic, and geopolitical partnership yeah. that has developed. This is a partnership that many observers, including myself, uh, see as favoring China much more than it does favor really? Russia. Uh, this is a play by Russia to draw China into some sort of kind of you know anti-Western block right. in international affairs. Uh, economically speaking, China is reaping most of the benefit of this relationship. Is it is it just because Russia is that desperate, or is it really because they really want to have the political power against the West? Yeah, they are really after geopolitical power. China takes a much longer term view of things, yeah. uh, and for them, economics makes. Much more to sense. They're, yeah. they're willing to let Putin and Russia kind of uh, be the fall guy Interesting. Uh, in international politics. Well, yeah, it's kind of smart politics, I guess. No, it is. Uh, the Chinese are very shrewd. It's a, it's a really interesting um, thing. There's another thing I've, we've got to ask you because she's running for president. Hillary Clinton, when yeah. she was secretary of state, went in and, and they were going to push the reset the button. The reset button, yes, of and, course. Um, and went, okay, so explain why that was such a fiasco. Because she – it was offensive. She, There was something about pushing the reset button that was mistranslated. Do you remember yeah, all of that? Yeah, it was mistranslated. The, the button said the wrong thing. <laughs> but uh, it was an offense like – Yeah, I mean to some extent. I, it wasn't what? taken too much as an offense. Uh, but I mean Hillary tried to do the same thing that President uh, – George H or George W. Bush did uh, early in his presidency when he, you know, says that he looked into Putin's soul, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and saw it was good. This is someone we could work yeah, with. Right. Uh, turned out to maybe not be the case, at least to the extent that we wanted, uh, yeah. in terms of cooperation with our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Russia did help to some extent with the war in Afghanistan. They certainly opposed us in the war in Iraq. Uh, Hillary tries to do the same thing, and as previously, it, it doesn't go so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got relations uh, ameliorating to some extent immediately, but then kind of the the tension, the suspicion uh, comes back in. Um, Vladimir says Putin says there's no, uh, they have no enemies. Their only enemy is uh, anybody that doesn't, I guess, respect them. That uh, he, they, they say America always wants them to be a vassal, uh, right? Just a, a yes man, and they'll never be the yes man. What would you, if you were advising our State Department, what should our position be with Russia? Can we, can we ever really fully bring them into an allied position? Do you think, or is it just something they are kind of what they are? 
At this point, it would be very difficult. Uh, it was If I was advising back in the 1990s, early 2000s, uh, I would certainly have a we few had things a little to more say. hope there. Yeah, and I think we could have done a much better job in bringing Russia into political, economic treaties. We certainly did some of that. Uh, and we've done some of it recently. Uh, Obama and Putin signed uh, a few years back kind of an anti-nuclear pr- proliferation deal, uh, arms control. So we're still working on a few levels with the Russians. Uh, the Ukraine crisis has has just blown everything up. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult to see where things are going to go from here uh, in terms of our international relations. Uh, my counsel would be to try to treat Russia as a potential partner. But that has become so difficult in in recent years. Uh, President Putin has proved himself to be much more aggressive than he was in the 2000s. And it's difficult to work with with such a man at at this point. Yeah. Do you you sense, I mean, just even the air flight that was shot down over the Ukraine, access wasn't necessarily granted very quickly. There's still no answers. Right. I mean, I mean, we we think we know what happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian pro-Russian rebel shot it down with weaponry acquired from, from Russia. Russia. Uh, they cl- claim there's no proof of this and that it was, you know, the Ukrainian army that did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean. Uh, hundreds of innocents dead. <laughs> right. Hundreds of innocent dead and very little being done. Yeah. I mean, in part, the sanctions are a result of this flight being shot down but they're tied to other things as well. So it's really kind of just be careful and give it time? Yeah, I I think this conflict certainly needs time at this point. We need a series of very gradual steps toward renewing economic relationships, but that can only occur if Putin withdraws his support for East Ukrainian rebels, which it looks like he's very loath to do. We still have reports of... Russian military personnel, experts, advisors in eastern Ukraine. Uh, a few of them were captured recently by the Ukrainian army. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, they're being disavowed by Russia, saying, oh, these are just former soldiers. They're voluntarily. So, I mean, we still have uh, a conflict that is simmering, uh, that has not been resolved. Uh, and it's it's difficult to see the resolution of that anytime soon. Mm. Well, what's it like for you, just as we wrap up here, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, again, is a professor here at Brigham Young University of Russian and Eastern European history. You've lived there. You've, I have. You've studied it immensely. They have an incredibly rich history, and yet and then their current present state seems – they seem – I don't know. They seem proud. Absolutely, yet, uh, as they angry, should be. Right, and angry at, <laughs> at the West. Right. What is it like for you to see it? And, you know, what would your hopes be? My hopes are certainly for reconciliation uh, between us and them. It's a country that I enjoy visiting. Uh, I love to be with the Russian people. The Russian people, by and large, are uh, good-natured, friendly. Uh, I enjoy being with them. Uh, By the same token, they do have a deep-rooted suspicion of the West uh, and I think we can do better to try to overcome that. Uh, and the rhetoric from some of our politicians and thought leaders has not always been encouraging or helpful over the past several years. 
Now, is there a good reason for that? Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Uh, based on how uh, Putin has behaved in the international arena. Uh, but my hopes would certainly be for reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, and I would remind our listeners that even in the depths of the Cold War, there was this period known as detente in mm-hmm. the 1970s when President Nixon in particular was able to forge relationships, friendships, even with his Russian counterparts, where we saw a relaxation of tensions, where we saw a deepening of cultural exchanges, academic exchanges. Uh, And I think we should remember that moment and perhaps strive toward that. That's a great model, isn't it? Yeah. And and maybe it's kind of you need time and the right partners at the right time. You do. And then a really good party. That always helps. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Jeff Hardy, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. And Thank taking, you. I think, a difficult topic and making it a lot easier. There you have it, my friends. A little Russia 101. Interesting, interesting stuff. We'll take a break, come back, uh, continue looking at some of the headlines. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Got a great show for you today. Busy, busy, busy. You got to get busy, right? You got to be busy. You can't just sit there and think. Heaven forbid... One of our guests coming on a little bit later uh, is a professor, uh, Brad Stotts, who's going to be teaching us about some studies that they've been doing that maybe you ought to plan more. Because just being busy, not usually a good sign of productivity. Movement it, it does looks not good, equal productive. It looks good, though. It looks very good. You're sitting in an office just staring at the wall. Yeah. Doesn't That's look right. good. How does it look if you're underneath the table or desk in an office with the lights out asleep? Is your door shut? Yes. Okay, you're fine. But I have a window they can look oh. in. Is it locked? No. Because if you lock the door and turn the lights out, they'll think you've stepped out. Yeah. Whereas you're just under the table sleeping. Great point. Great point. You really need to sell that uh, you're not home. So I shouldn't wear my pajamas either. Well, you can, but you just need to have enough sleep. time to change back into your. I can't sleep in my work clothes. I always got to get comfy. It's like when those people come through my neighborhood and they're selling things. They're knocking on the door yeah. and they want to talk to you. Um, my tactic is to just sit there and ignore the door knob, the doorbell. Yeah. My son is, Dad, someone's at the door. And he get runs door, down to the, the door, door, opens yeah, no, the door. And no. like, what are you doing? Yeah. That's a, like my wife thinks you're obligated to open the door no. because they're knocking. You have a choice. And you're not obligated to answer the phone either. No. I have, a, I have an answering machine. Just I've already got this whole study down. Let you it happen. You can just sit still and make life happen. James does it. Yeah. When Jimmy. somebody knocks on my door, I go to the door. Do you have a door? It, yeah. Yeah. And there's like a pane of glass. I look at them through the glass and just don't do anything. You just, I just wiggle, stand you there just wiggle your finger. No, no. Slowly shake my head. <laughs> not today. <laughs> nice try, pal. Interesting. Anyway, well, that'll be a great topic uh, coming up today. Um, but it doesn't end there. We also bring you the latest headlines. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. Yes. May run for office. 
He's formed an exploratory committee, sure, as we learned yesterday. On Tuesday, issued an executive order enshrining protections for people and businesses that do not want to serve same-sex couples. So he's he's done one of them, their executive orders that President Clinton does that all the or GOP— Obama. Or Obama, I mean, does that seem to— that the Make GOP hates. That. Yeah. Yes. So he went ahead and did that he in just his did state. One. But he, he did says, it on the most controversial issue. He did. He goes, we don't support discrimination in Louisiana, and we do support religious liberty. This is uh, gentle okay. in a statement. These two values can be upheld at the same time. The order came shortly after a panel of the state legislature voted down a proposed bill, the Marriage and Conscience Act, that would have had a similar effect. In nixing the legislation, the panel said it was concerned the so-called Religious Freedom Bill could trigger a backlash similar to those seen in other states that pursued religious freedom earlier this year in Indiana and Arkansas. Yeah, he's trying to just In the most high-profile case, Indiana Governor Mike Pence dropped his defense of religious freedom, uh, the religious freedom law, and called for it to be tweaked to prohibit discrimination based on Mm. sexual orientation. Critics of this move accused Jindal who's launched a presidential exploratory committee of pandering to the religious right in an attempt to improve his odds of winning the GOP nomination. Oh, you're just playing politics. Just playing politics. Well, it seems smart. But he is a politician. Yeah. I don't know if he can do anything without playing politics. That's a great point. As all politicians do. Just like plumbers, they play, pum- they play plumber. They play plumber. They could play politics. Are you playing plumber with me? <laughs> Actually, yes, I am. <laughs> That's it. So that that that's something that may uh, come back to bite him, or it may come back to strengthen his cause towards a uh, possible presidential run. As right. he's still exploring. Justice Department announced Wednesday that Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Barclays, the Royal Bank of Scotland will plead guilty to multiple crimes, including violating antitrust laws. A group of traders who referred to themselves as the Cartel, the cartel, rigged the market to manipulate interest rates and foreign currencies. Oh man! The traders executed the scheme for five years through 2012. UBS, the fifth bank in question, said Wednesday that it will plead guilty to manipulating the London interbank offered rate, called the LIBOR, which is a a big deal if you're in the finance or financial sectors. I guess the pay of 545 million in fines to U.S. authorities. In total, the five banks will pay 5.4 billion. The bank's wow. parent companies are expected to enter the guilty pleas in a Connecticut federal court on Wednesday. They're pleading guilty. This is probably to keep them out of, out of jail. Well, the company pleads guilty and they pay a fine. Yeah. There's no actual charges. No individuals who made these decisions are indicted. Nothing happens to anyone other Everyone than... stays the same. The we... big company pays a fine and they move on. They're able to continue operating just like normal. There's did, no... Did you notice the words that you were using? Cartel? Yes. Executed? Absolutely. These are like This is like mafia terms. And yet, so th- this group of uh, bankers now have pled guilty, the banks have. W- the government, I guess, will make $6 billion, $5.5 billion, and everyone's good. Sure. And they just move on business as normal. Back to business. No one is indicted. No one is held individually responsible for decisions somebody made. Don't we normally call a cartel like, like the drug cartel? Yes. But is that how they handle the drug cartel? They just pay your fines and then everyone. No, goes they back usually to... send in a SWAT team and the leader gets killed. Is how it, how it's happened. Okay. Occasionally they it, get arrested. It just seems different. With it the seems banks. like a different approach. Maybe. Interesting. But it's interesting. They call themselves the cartel. Yeah. Probably thought of it as as funny. <laughs> uh, Waco police recovered one thousand weapons in the arrest. <laughs> what? That works out to five point six weapons per person arrested. We were just trying to talk. <laughs> They started patting them down, and all these things are falling out. The weapons range from brass knuckles, chains, knives, to an AK-47 that was on premises. 
Did I? I thought I left that on the bike. Police found one gun and a bag of chips and uncovered a knife and a bag of flour, it says. So this is all guns the, everywhere. This all stemming from the restaurant in Waco, Texas, where the biker gangs were meeting and the arrests <laughs> happened after nine people were killed. But 1,000 weapons. Well, when you think about 1,000 weapons, that could have gone a lot worse than nine people dying. Absolutely. <laughs> like Everybody could have died. And the, the, You know, the, the police do the thing where they, they go in a conference room and lay out all the weapons. Yeah. It's amazing what's there. Yeah, it's like they all bring them in on machines. Beep, beep, yeah. beep. They're dumping guns and chains and Fox, knives. Fox News has announced guidelines Wednesday that will uh, widow down the field of participants in the first Republican yes, debate in 2016. Yes, you can't have 16. Can't have possibly 16 people may run. Right. And you, it's hard to fill a, have a stage big enough for that many people. What are the rules? It will require contenders to place in the top 10 in an average of the five most recent national polls in the running up to the event, narrowing what is expected to be a field of 16. So okay. you have to be in the top five or the top 10 of the average five most recent polls. That's it. So they're really narrowing it down to 10. 10 seems like still a lot of people. Right. But they feel they're including enough without a clown car situation, which yeah. it kind of is anyways. The idea, you know, so many people packed in a small area. Now, if they showed up in a clown car, that would be fantastic. That would be funny because I think it would feed into kind of the yeah. chaos that's but going on. But everyone's like, don't call it a clown car. Meanwhile, CNN laid out a different approach for the uh, the second debate on September 16th, which will be split into two parts, one featuring the top 10 candidates in public polling and a second in what will include lower tiered candidates who garner at least 1% in polls. So you'll have the A team and the B team, and they said the people that are on the B team will also get more airtime than those will be on the A team or something. If people are going to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So that, it's just funny how they're going to parse this and set it up. And uh, The Chinese Navy issued warnings eight times as a U.S. surveillance plane on Wednesday swooped over the islands that Beijing is using to extend its zone of influence. We the, talked about the, the islands they're islands. creating in the ocean. Right. Dumping cement in, building it up, and then paving it over so they can have. Are they some making sort of really land. cool designs like Dubai did? No, I okay. think they're just making big blobs of cement in the ocean. Uh, the series of man-made islands and the massive Chinese military buildup on them have alarmed the Pentagon, which is carrying out the surveillance flights in order to make clear the U.S. does not recognize China's territorial claims. CNN was on board; they had their cameras, and as they're flying over, you'd hear the radio warning them. And, yeah, and it was. This is the Chinese Navy. This is the Chinese Navy. Please go away to avoid misunderstanding. <laughs> That's it. That, see, they could Please said, go away. We will blow you out of the air if you do not go away. They weren't threatened. They were, Please, kind just, airplane. Just go away. Turn away so that there is not a misunderstanding. That was very polite of very China. Very polite. Very polite of China. They, you know, they could have been jerks. They, they weren't. And uh, into the high school year. Yes, there's seven. There's pranks that come up. Uh oh. People do things. Yeah. A property listing on Craigslist boasts three gyms, a fully stocked library, and a theater with full sur- uh, full sound surround <laughs> system. The Ohio high school uh, kid put her, uh, his school up on Craigslist, charged only $2,000 <laughs> for the building. He tossed in all lower classmen and uh, uh, two luxury kitchens, six locker rooms, and then all the freshmen, obviously. So Freshmen free. Get all the freshmen you need. Interesting. So you can buy a school in Ohio for two grand. Two grand. That's a deal. It's a great deal. I mean, real estate prices as they as they yeah. are makes you wonder. Maybe we need more children in real estate. <laughs> Apparently, somebody's making a profit. Good stuff. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. 
And we'll be talking about that with Brad Stotts after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Hey, friends, welcome back to the show. Uh, are you the type who has about a million and one things to do on your to-do list today? Do you ever make it totally through the list? You know, I never do. With everything today moving at such a fast and interconnected pace, there is no end to the should-dos on our schedules. And uh, the Harvard Business Review has actually raised an interesting question about whether all of our busyness can actually be quantified as productiveness. Professor Brad Stotts, co-author of a recent article for Harvard Business Review, joins us now to talk about how a little idle time planning can actually increase your productivity. Professor Stotts, welcome to the show. Hi there. Great to be here. It's great to have you. I loved your article, uh, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness, because we we really – there's something about us as humans, it seems like. We have this aversion to idleness. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think that uh, we we want to do something, right? We right. feel like uh, there's there's work that needs accomplishing, uh, and so it's you know the right thing for us to do is to dive right in and, and start working on it. And and oftentimes that ends up being being the wrong thing for us to do. Because we, I, I, that's it, I guess, is that we we jump in, we hop in. But a lot of the research you've done, and the fun thing about this article, it's filled with other research that that kind of validates each of the points. Um, But you you basically say there's two reasons that we often feel so busy, and and both of the reasons are very – they're self-imposed. We put them on ourselves. Yeah, exactly, and and I think you hit it kind of where you started off. That this aversion to idleness. That that you know, even when we should kind of take that pause, um, either physiologically because our body needs the rest, or perhaps cognitively uh, that we should be thinking about things we don't. Um, and then we kind of compound that because of this bias for action. Uh, that 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 jumping in or the the doing something when when nothing nothing might be better. And and one of the examples we use is, is some research by others um, looking at professional soccer goalies. And it's uh, one of those studies that uh, once you read it, you say, oh, I wish, <laughs> wish I had done something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but they look at, at this question of, of taking penalty kicks uh, and, and kind of what, what does a goalie do and what should a goalie do? Um, and what's so fascinating about it is that, you know, we watch, uh, we watch that you know, on TV and, and we see that, that most of the time the goalies, you know, decision, do I dive left? Do I dive right? Um, and they don't stop very many, 13, 14% of the shots. But, but if a goalie just stays still, uh, then they end up stopping about a third of the shots, but they almost never do that. They don't. If they would just stand still, they're going to have a better shot than the jumping. It's, it's, is it just, you don't want to look stupid. They don't want to be standing in the middle and then have it be shot to the right. So let's just jump to the right. Oh, yeah, oh exactly. Right? Shot to I the mean, left. <laughs> yeah, would, no, nobody's going to fault the goalie for guessing the wrong way, right? Right, right. Flip. Um, and so as long as you jump somewhere and say, "Oh, you know, he made a valiant effort," um, when in fact, you know, go, going nowhere is at least in this particular case perhaps a better choice. It's such an interesting idea because none of us want to be looking flat-footed. Yep. So let's just jump. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I think and, and it's understandable because in, in many certainly of the corporate context that we work in, we, we know that uh, you know, we're often rewarded for, the, um, for, the, for looking like we're busy uh, rather than actually for the work we get done, unfortunately. Oh, my heavens. Who'd have thunk? I mean, yep. and the idea, what an interesting idea, too, of just studying goalies, for heaven's sakes. Um, hanging back, though, you're kind of saying just just one of the keys and one of the rules that you bring up a lot is instead of just jumping into your work day, just stay kind of in the middle. Just stay neutral and maybe get your head in the game first. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that's a good example of something that, you know, Data, looking at data, looking at analytics um, can actually help us understand, right? And, and sometimes the answer is not conventional wisdom, is not, you know, I should be studying whether the, the shooter likes to go, to go to his left or go to his right. Uh, instead, looking at the data, you say, well, guess what? On average, um, staying in the middle and, you know, maybe a better choice. And so how do we think about for our own context, you know, perhaps some, some data that we could look at, to, mm. you know, if it's a business context, what, what we're doing and, and maybe what's a novel way of, of kind of flipping things around. It's, it's counterintuitive because in your article you say about the, the soccer goalies, 33% of the time if they'd stay in the middle, they'd block more shots, yet only 6.3% of the time do the goalies ever stay in the middle. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's not the common uh, approach. And, and inevitably, that probably helped out some, right? So yeah. if the goalie stayed 100% of the time in the middle, yeah, then um, everyone would then know. Right. One would imagine you'd see some different results. But suddenly you're staying 7%, 8%, mm. you know, 15%. Um, you know, you, you would imagine at least that, that those results would improve. But, but this is a very basic idea, really. So the first idea is that you kind of bring up is stay in the middle instead of just getting really busy. But yep. then, and I guess, too, that just supports the idea that we have this incessant need to act. Like I, I myself, even just driving home, I'm totally willing to drive. Instead of waiting four more minutes in traffic to get on the freeway that would make this faster, I'm willing to take a back road that actually takes me 10 minutes out of the way, but I'm moving the entire time. <laughs> I'm right there on the same page with you. That uh, It's the that dumbest thing. That tendency. Yeah. What's that about? Like, is it just, I guess, sitting there? It's just... Yeah. I mean, it is, right? And, and it's, um, I mean, it's interesting. We're actually doing some separate work um, trying to look at commutes um, and trying to understand how people can more productively use their commutes. Um, and I think that the case you're describing, and, it, and it's the case that, that I live too, um, that instead, you know, I obsess on sitting there for those four minutes. And so that drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, and then quite reasonably, an extra 15 minutes is, is arguably a rational response because I avoid that frustration. <laughs> Um, what we what we see when we look at how people use their commutes um, is that those that use it productively flip it around. So when they have that four minutes, instead of you know cursing at the traffic that's in front of them, they actually use it for planning purposes. Yeah. Um, so they think about you know both debriefing their day if they're on the way home, or importantly if they're on the way to work. You know what what am I trying to accomplish today? What can I get done? Um, and so you get kind of a double benefit there. You you save that time you might have lost by taking the longer route, um, but you also switch a frustration into something that sets you up to be productive during the mm. day. And all of a sudden, you're also – if I sit there and engage my mind instead of just getting busy trying to avoid traffic, I'm, it seems like I'm, I'm going to be receiving data. Now I'm yep. gathering information that makes this process more effective tomorrow. 
or today. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that one of the things we find in, in other kind of creativity type research is that as we move into different surroundings, we have different stimuli around us, our brains are able to make different connections. So you may even get the extra benefit of, of approaching that problem in a new way um, as you're thinking about things of, oh, you know what, maybe actually I should go talk to Mary tomorrow about this uh, because I think she's done something related. Um, and so that may help you as well. It's so interesting. Again, we're talking with um, our great uh, researcher, for heaven's sakes, Brad Stotts is joining us. You can find out about him just by following him on Twitter, at Br Stotts. Stotts is spelled S-T-A-A-T-S. And um, he wrote, uh, to me, just a wonderful article, too, because it's so full of research. Remedy for unproductive busyness. Uh, two of the big keys, he says, are people have an aversion to idleness. It's just kind of nature's way of keeping us moving, and we have a bias towards action, even if the action doesn't necessarily equate to productivity. Man, it's like it's more like we're robots, right? Like we're just kind of going on this natural, I don't know, uh, scripting versus actually being present and thinking. It, it is, and, and I mean, I, I think the you know we we, ha- we can't give ourselves too hard of a time about it. No, it's um, natural. In, in in many ways, it's it's even appropriate, right? If we had to reinvent every wheel every day, yeah, we would never get anything done. That's true. And so the fact that we go on autopilot, um, you know, most of our lives, frankly, is is a good thing. Um, it allows us to actually, you know, get anything done. Uh, the problem, and I think what research is is being helpful to increasingly show us, is that well, there, there's some ways um, that. Uh, this may point us in the wrong direction. And so then we need to think about what are the the tools, techniques, practices that we can use uh, to kind of turn things around. You bet. Let's take a break, um, and we'll come back and continue this discussion with Professor Brad Brad Stotts. I want to know some of the rules. One of I know the big keys that he does talk a lot about is reflective and being more reflective or reflecting on our day a little bit more pre-planning before we just jump into stuff. We'll talk about uh, his research there and his findings there with uh, Professor Brad Stotts. More after this break. To the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone, we're talking with uh, Professor Brad Stotts, who's a visiting professor at Wharton and uh, has written a, a study, How to Improve Knowledge. He um, also has written an article, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness, which was in the Harvard Business Review. It's really a fun, I don't know, I think it's a really cool article about being busy, folks, doesn't necessarily equate to productivity. You know, movement doesn't equate to results. And uh, he's joining us on the line. Uh, Brad, welcome back. Thanks. It's uh, super interesting stuff we're talking about. One of the things you do mention in the article is we we need to maybe, instead of just filling up the moment with movement and, you know, and activity, busyness, we might want to spend more time reflecting. What do you mean? And and what kind of, what does that reflection look like? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so yeah, the, this idea of uh, kind of contemplative reflection, uh, you know, we can, we can trace, back, trace back for, for frankly, millennia. Um, and, you know, it, it's there suggesting that it might actually help us be, be more productive. And, and so we wanted to take that kind of out for a spin um, and work with an organization to look, um, you know, could we change their practices in a way that meaningfully uh, kind of impacted workers' performance? Um, and so what we did was we partnered with uh, an Indian outsourcer uh, and was looking at their technical service operations. So um, in particular, uh, where they were training workers uh, to uh, answer uh, kind of questions, technical questions that folks would have uh, for different uh, you know, computer software products. Mm. Um, and um, in that uh, preparation process, folks went through about a month of training. Uh, they had college degrees, uh, but this was kind of on the, the ins and outs of the product that they would support. Um, and at the end of that month, they would take uh, an examination and basically had to score high enough on, on the exam uh, in order to then move on to the floor. Huh. Uh, and so we took a really simple idea uh, that we said, look, let's at the end of each day um, over this two-week period, kind of in the middle of the training process, um, give them 15 minutes to reflect. Uh, so what we'll ask them to do is just you know, write about the two uh, kind of most important lessons you had today. Um, and so the idea there is that, that it would do a couple of things that one is kind of it would, it would help them in their thinking, uh, that would help them cognitively to see connections in their work, how things perhaps today related to um, yesterday, uh, related to where they think they might be going. Um, the second thing is, is more motivational, that, uh, that it could help them in terms of their self-efficacy, in terms of their confidence, their belief that they could accomplish these things. Um, the Stan Smith, the tennis great, um, said, uh, experience tells you what to do, confidence allows you to do it. Uh, and so the idea is that reflection you know, would, could potentially help you see, look, I, I actually know more than I realize. Uh, and so then kind of with that structure, 15 minutes a day for, for two weeks, um, we implemented uh, a field experiment. So we randomly assigned groups to either get this, this treatment of the two weeks of reflection um, or just to go through their normal processes. So the group that went through the normal processes recognized got you know, technically an extra 15 minutes of training because they both stopped at the same time each day. It was just 15 minutes got moved over huh. to reflection for the one group. Um, we then tracked uh, kind of a, a couple hundred folks um, over time. Uh, we watched how they performed on the exam. Um, and at the end of the process, we found that uh, the group that went through the reflection condition um, ended up uh, about 23% higher on the wow. final score. If you just look at pass rates, it's the same sort of thing. Um, so uh, I think that we weren't surprised to see an effect of yeah, right. we did it in the first place. We were surprised at the size of the effect. Um, I, I wouldn't have predicted beforehand it would be be that large. I mean, that's that's a what is that like a grade or two? That's yep. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it's the difference between kind of keeping the job and, and losing the job for many folks. Um, and, and, and the reflection was done in the class. Yes. So, so they would take the class, learn, they'd be trained, and then you gave them 15 minutes to reflect on what they had learned. At the end of the day, exactly. And, and it was their choice what they reflected right, on, right? right. So what they would write on. Would you, would you, did, you prime, did you prime them or prompt them with questions? No, I mean, just, the, just what were thinking. the two most important lessons from today? So we didn't try to, you know, what did you learn about the hash or something Man. today that yeah. was you know, specific. 
that that to me that's like groundbreaking. I because I sit there and I, I work with a lot of couples, teach classes, and um, I actually have them go home. And then when they come back to class the next week, they have two hours of training. They then have a lot of homework to go do, stuff to go practice. When they come back to class, I have them reflect on what they learned over the week. But um, I had no idea that that is – it's just powerful. It's, it's yeah, kind of intuitive it again, right? It, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? If we look at you know, many, many – it's funny with this question. In some ways, I came to it from you know, when I'd been a practitioner and did things like learning journals. I kind of you know, turned my nose up at them. Okay, fine. I'll do it because you're telling right. me to, but right. it doesn't mean I have to like it. Um, and, and was left this, well, well hold on. Maybe it's, being, it's more useful than I appreciate. Sure. Um, and I think that's what, that's what the research shows. Well, and, and so if, if we were going to take this into our lives, we could sit down at the end of a day and spend five minutes, ten minutes at thinking about the day and taking out our best ideas, our best practices, and maybe making a list. Is that how you, what you'd suggest? Yeah, I think, I think it's two things you probably want to do. The, the first is around that, is really thinking about, you know, okay, what happened today? What can I learn from it? And, you know, sometimes it may be at the end of the day. It, it may also be, you know, you have an important meeting and you come back to your desk or you're driving back from a sales meeting and trying to think about, you know, what happened there? Why did it happen? What can I do better next time? What should I definitely repeat next time because uh-huh. it went so well? Um, it's sort of closing that learning loop, right? I've had the action um, and then now the thinking that goes with it to really make those connections in the brain to hopefully, you know, continue the good behavior and, and change the behavior that, that needs the changing. Yeah. How many times do we go to a meeting and handle the meeting and then we're so busily getting back to the next meeting that we don't capture? We don't. Exactly. And, and then we miss these opportunities that are all right there. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's it, right? That you know, there there's all of this opportunity for improvement. Um, we just don't normally have time in our day uh, to actually permit it. And so, unfortunately, we then you know come back you know four days later. Um, we're now trying to kind of fuzzily recollect you know the basic facts from the meeting because so much has happened between now and then. Yeah. Um, and so we lose kind of the base you know memory of it, but we also lose that. Okay, well, well, what should I take away from it? That's cool. That's a great tool. So that's reflection. What uh, what are some other tools we should be using that might help us, you know, manage our busyness a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a few things to think about. We've talked already a little bit, but it's worth reiterating around planning. Um, and so that's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I was saying there are kind of two things. One is is looking at the reflective piece. Um, the other is is doing just that little bit of planning. It can be at the end of the day. It can be at the beginning of the day, arguably maybe at both. Um, as you think about, okay, what what's coming tomorrow um, and, you know, how should I address it? Um, and I think that little bit of structure – um, helps helps really guide us um, and and direct us. That uh, there's there's another fascinating study we talk about uh, in the article uh, by some some researchers from uh, the London School of Economics uh, looking at Indian CEOs, um, and they were able to uh, to get data on how they spent their time. Um, and what's so fascinating to me about that study um, is that. You know, what they saw is that those CEOs that you know, over a couple-week period um, spent more time on planning, uh, so thinking about kind of the, the tactical plan, also the strategic plans, um, showed you know, significantly higher firm-level productivity and profitability. So it wasn't just an individual story you know, that they were, they were doing better, but that that translated all the way to their entire firm. Hmm. Wow. 
And it, it, so, so the 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 CEOs that were more more focused on having some time planning and prepping, and and actually even more collaborative with their own employees, yep. were more productive than those that didn't do as much planning, but were were constantly busy, but working with a lot more of the outsiders. Yeah, exactly. So, the, so those more productive CEOs were really getting the leverage that you would hope to see if you're at the top of the organization, yeah. right? You, you can't do everything by yourself. You've got lots of folks that are working for and with you. Um, and so, again, I think not shockingly, those that, that used that did better. Um, and so, again, I mean, I, I think that as I look at kind of this line of work, um, there's a part of me that sort of has a, well, well Brad, no duh reaction. Um, right. and, and, and then kind of I have to pause and say, well, well hold on. If, it, if it's so obvious, you know, why, <laughs> why don't we do more of it? Um, and so I think that's really the, the value in, in focusing on it um, is, is getting ourselves to, to take that pause. And uh, we kind of conclude with, with I think it, it, it's probably one of the best pieces of advice that, that I ever got from a mentor uh, that uh, I was sitting down. I was having one of those meetings where I had, you know, 25 items on my to-do list and we had, you know, 30 minutes to cover everything and in no way were we going to hit all of these items. And so I thought, well, if I just talk faster, um, <laughs> then, uh, then we'll accomplish more. Yeah. Um, and, and partway through, he kind of put his hand out and said, Brad, hold, hold on. Um, you know, and, and I stopped and, you know, kind of took a breath and he said, look, look at me, you know, Brad, don't avoid thinking by being busy. Um, and I think if there's kind of one thing to take away, that, that's probably the nicest way to summarize it, that, that we shouldn't avoid thinking um, by being busy if we want to be productive, if we want to accomplish those tasks that truly are important to us. Oh, such great advice. I appreciate it. Brad Stotts, really, a, a, that's a fantastic article and great uh, mentor you had there. Don't yeah, avoid exactly. thinking. Exactly. Still, still grateful to get to get to interact with him. Well, keep up your great work and writing. Can hardly wait to uh, follow more of it. Again, follow Brad Stotts at Br Stotts S T A A T S at Br Stotts, and uh, you'll continue to get this this great insight. We're going to take a break. Come back. Do a little of the coach's corner when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM One Forty Three BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, on this program, we like to give you the tools to make a a difference in your life. You know, it's one thing to run through the headlines. It's another to have a clue what to do with it. Loved our last guest, um, uh, Brad Stotts, who was uh, the author of the article, The Remedy for Unproductive Busyness. And you know it. Uh, We've talked about it a lot on the show. Average attention span is dropping. We now have, I think, about an eight-second attention span, which is pathetic, and uh, especially knowing that a goldfish has a nine-second attention span. So we, we stay busy. We like to keep moving. We think with our wonderful technology that it is the key to making us so much more productive, except we're also a lot less present, right? And we talk about that a lot on the show but one of the things that um, was brought up by Brad in his article is this this important lesson of um, of how would you put it? I guess he called it reflection. It's learning, right? Learning shouldn't be like a oh yeah, we ought to do that. That's it's like we're all surprised that we're not learning. 
Have you ever been so busy? One of my favorite quotes. Have you ever been so busy patching, uh, chasing the flies that you don't go patch the screen? We can chase flies forever, but we never seem to be patching the problems. We never seem to fix the problems. And we say, well, I can't. Hello, I'm chasing flies. And yet a little bit of time. And the research is even showing you don't need a lot of time. Just a few minutes. 15 minutes a day, according to his study, could increase your productivity and your learning by 22%. I mean, that's amazing. What does 22% of a more productive employee get you? If your if your employees could produce be 20% more productive financially, that would change the game. What if you as a mom could figure out through a little reflective thinking, you could become 20% more effective as a mother or as a father. So we sit there and we feel like we're burning the candle at both ends and we are. We are worn out. We don't have more time, and because you can't have more time, maybe what you need to do is we need to figure out a way to get more learning, get more information. So there's a wonderful tool I learned a long time ago, and it's very basic, that you can use everywhere you go. After every situation, after every event, after every everything that's important to you, just go basically think of three things, Okay. Continue, I call it, stop and start. What do I need to continue doing? So after um, I've had a meeting or a situation or even a show, we do. Uh, I do in my mind this idea of a post, I call it a post-mortem, uh, but that sounds horrible. Um, but it's actually an after-incident report. Police do it all the time. You know, um, the military, they do these types of uh, reviews um, after a uh, you know, a major situation like a Ferguson or a Baltimore, they ought to be doing uh, some learning, don't you think? And basically all I ask myself is, okay, after today's show, based on today's show, what do I need to continue doing from today's show? What worked today? What do I need to stop doing? And what do I need to start doing? Continue, stop, start. And it's a really interesting thing. You could do it Now, wouldn't it have been great if you had done it for last summer? What should we continue doing that that works really well during the summertime with our kids? What should we stop doing that we just shouldn't do? Don't ever do this again. And what should we make sure we start doing? If we had done that at the end of last summer, we could be implementing those changes in preparation for today. Now, you still might have an incredible memory, but are you going to take the time to do that for your children's summer? Continue, stop, start. And it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful, powerful tool. We do it a lot, and, and I do it a lot with, um, with couples. I don't use the words continue, stop, start. But when they sit down, we teach a, a process called couples meetings where once a week for six weeks, these couples come in. They've already learned some communication skills, and they sit in a really safe environment where they can talk. And the first thing we identify is we just have them rate their relationship, rate your marriage on a scale from 1 to 10. Then we basically ask them what's working, which is the continue question. And they spend about 10 or 15 minutes making a list of everything this week that went really well. And they, they shore up what's good 
And part of that is because every day there's something good happening. And as humans, if we would start identifying what's happening, we can, we can go from there. So these are couples that are struggling, and yet they can still spend 20 minutes once a week identifying what's working. Well, we talked really well that one night. Now, there may have been four other nights where they argued, but that one night we really communicated really effectively. What else worked that night? What else was different that night? Well, we actually helped each other with dinner and we cleaned up together. Great. What else was working? And we just make a list of everything that's, what's, that's working. That's what's continuing. What do we need to continue doing? And we build on a really good list. And, and what I suggest, too, is we keep identifying new things that are working this week that, weren't, that we didn't notice last week. So we can find as many good things as we can. Then we work on what do we need to stop doing. And that's where you could maybe make a list of some things that didn't go so well. Well, we did fight those other three nights. We could talk about right now those, those talks. And then you, we could talk about what do we need to start doing more of. So in these meetings, the couples work on what, what worked. Then we spend about 45 minutes using communication skills to talk about what we need to stop doing. And we give them each a chance to communicate and understand what the other's saying. And then we spend at the very end of the meeting. By the way, the meeting's about an hour and a half. Now, you don't always have to take an hour and a half. But for couples that are in serious you know, turmoil, an hour and a half's pretty handy. And then we talk about what do we need to start doing as a couple? What does that need to look like? And I have them actually process through four lights, I call them. I believe every human being has four unique gifts that are lights that are designed to teach us and help us to be better. One of those lights is called self-awareness. We have the ability to recognize what part of the problem we are in our marriage. And if you're self-aware, you can grow that light so that you can understand more clearly how you influence your partner, what you do, what you don't do. Now, you got to be careful because sometimes that self-awareness, oh, I'm an idiot. I'm such a loser. That's not necessarily self-awareness. That's another, that's kind of self-pity. We don't want our self-awareness to take us into self-pity. We want our self-awareness to help us recognize that based on this conversation I'm having with my wife, I kind of need to pick my game up a little bit more in helping around the house. And we use our self-awareness as a light. Another light we use is, is, is empathy. What are my partner's needs and wants? And we have really a time to reflect on what, what is it my wife really needs based on what she's bringing up to me. Instead of fighting her about it, what is her deeper need here? What is she really struggling with? And then we explore that. And my empathy can understand her needs and her empathy could understand my needs. So now I'm aware of what part of the problem I am and I'm more aware of what my spouse needs. Then the next tool we use is vision. What do I want most here? And I have them go through the process of reflectively listening and thinking about their conversation and their marriage well, we both want this. It seems like based on our conversation, we want to not fight three days out of seven. It seems like we want more of those good days instead of the bad days. It seems like we want to be united. You get clear on what you do want. What is your vision for a healthier relationship or life? And you could go through these same questions. What part of my job am I? Part of the problem am I? What are the needs and wants of the people around me at my work? What do I want most as an employee of this organization? And then the very last question is always my favorite. 
And it actually prompts us to go and know what to do. The very last question I call the conscience question, and we let our conscience be our guide, then I just say, great, based on this conversation, based on the lights that I've turned on, what's the most important thing I could do this week with my wife to go have the greatest positive impact? And I believe your conscience will be your guide, and it will tell you what you need to do. And my conscience might tell me I need to help more around the house like I did on that one night when it went really well. And my wife might come up with a completely different thing. She needs to be more patient or more willing to invite me to help instead of hoping I help based on our conversation. And then we both walk away with a conscience-driven solution that came from my four lights. And then that becomes our homework assignment with each other. And we look at each other and we commit to working on those two challenges, those two things our conscience led us to. And then we go try it again for a week. And then when we come back, we reflect a week. That's what I call a couples meeting. Doesn't have to be a beat down, doesn't have to be angry. It's just a learning opportunity. And we can do it with our executives. We can do it with everybody. What part of the problem are you? What are the needs and wants of the people around you? What do you want? What's your vision of what you want most here? And what's the most important thing you could do right now or this week? That same process could be done every day just as you end your day. What part of today did I impact really positively? Where did some of my less you know, attractive traits slip, slip into the day? It's just reflection, folks. You know it. I know it. It's just so hard, isn't it? But don't make the argument for how hard it is because when you think about it, It's not. If you just got out of a business meeting, take a second in your car and just reflect. Continue, stop, start. What should we continue based on that conversation? Write it down. What should we stop doing based on that conversation? Write it down. What should I start doing? Write it down. Oh, but I don't have anywhere to write it and I don't want to carry a... Use your phone. Learning, folks. You're you're wired to learn. And if we don't learn, then what on earth are we doing here? This is why we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You are, you're an agent, folks. Every one of us are here to make a change and to make a life better. And so, and that life should certainly be yours. Let's start there. Let's just learn. Little here, little there. Line upon line. Eventually, we're going we're gonna to figure this thing out. We'll take a break, my friends. Again, we can't do the show without you, so stick with us. We're going to have a break, come back to some headlines, start a whole new hour. Next hour, we're going to be getting into some pretty interesting stuff as well. Also, uh, you know, basically how, how to stay a little happier based on what we're achieving. It's not always about the outcome, folks. Sometimes there's a lot going on that might make us a lot happier than whether we actually win the prize or not. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kathy Aiken filling in for Matt this last hour of the program. Matt is off 
let's say, spending some quality catch-up time with his son, Jake, who returned last night from serving a two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Mexico. And I'll tell you, as a parent, when you wake up, your son gets out of his own bed after two years, comes to join you for breakfast. It is just, it's a great morning. Just, it really is. I have a son who served in the California Fresno Spanish-speaking mission, and when they come back, they're speaking a new language, and uh, you see their growth, as Matt and I talked about. It is a huge payday. So congratulations to them. I hope they're having a wonderful time with Jake. Matt and Marty, enjoy the time because it goes by quickly. Before you know it, they're out of the house and doing something else. So Terry South, I know you served a mission. Tell, tell me what it's like you're coming down the opposite. As a parent, we're dying, waiting for them to come around the corner. What is it like for you and the missionary that's just getting well, off the plane? Mine was pre-9-11. Oh, much different then. So, so they could come to the gate. Yeah, they were at the gate. Okay. So there was that mob there. But I don't know. It didn't seem like that big of a, a deal to me. I was looking for my mom. Couldn't see her. Mm-hmm. There's all these other people around like, how you doing? Where's my mom? <laughs> Where's my mom? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun time coming back. It is a great time. And as I always said, mom always gets the first hug. If anybody gets in the way... You better watch out. Those instincts kick in. And ours are obviously after 9-11, so we're down there waiting by the, by, the, by the baggage claim. And we have our third son is over at the Missionary Training Center. He's preparing to leave for Tokyo, Japan next month. And as you guys know, we can see the MTC from here, from the broadcast building. And to know he's over there and I can't talk to him, I can't go visit him, that's hard. You know, We want that phone call, and we only get two a year, so that can be pretty tough. But in this fi- final hour of the Matt Townsend Show, we're going to talk nutrition. I know we talk about that a lot. You hear about it all the time. But we have a unique twist that may help you get a little more motivated if you just have a few pounds to lose or, you know, maybe a little little more than a few. We're going to help you find a better strategy in your daily eating habits. We'll be talking to Christy Jo Hunt. She's the founder of Body Buddies, and she's going to give us some ideas on how to live a healthier life and uh, some of the ways may surprise you. But before we get to that, Terry has today's headlines. The uh, Supreme Court on Thursday today ruled 6-3 to three to uphold the subsidies made available by the Affordable Care Act to, that states that do not establish their own health care exchanges, thereby effectively saving President Obama's health care reform law, otherwise known as Obamacare. Chief Justice John Roberts, writing the court's decision, said that it was clearly Congress's intent to provide such subsidies. Quote, Congress passed the Affordable Care Act to improve health care insurance markets, not to destroy them. The challengers claimed the opposite in the case. Judge Judge Antonin Scalia, writing the dissent, disagreed about Congress's intent, saying the the ambiguous passage made clear that no such subsidy should be available. He accused Roberts and the rest of the majority of rewriting the law to make the subsidies available to everyone, concluding we should should start calling this law SCOTUS care instead of Obamacare. New York Corrections Officer Gene Palmer was arrested Wednesday in connection with the escape of two convicted murderers from the upstate Clinton Correctional Facility. Palmer was charged with promoting prison contraband, tampering with physical evidence, and official misconduct. He is accused of conspiring with prison worker Joyce Mitchell, who was arrested previously, to smuggle tools into the prison in frozen hamburger meat. Clinton County District Attorney Andrew Wiley. She put the hacksaw blades, put the other screwdriver bits in the hamburger, froze it, and then brought it into the facility. The correction officer, Gene Palmer, came, collected it, and then brought it to Matt. So it reminds me of the cartoons when you see someone in prison and they smuggle in cookies and it's all full of hacksaws mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And the cake, the blade and the, and the cake, and right? The cake. Yeah. Palmer's lawyer, Andrew Brockway, said his client had no knowledge of the hidden tools and plans to plead not guilty. The two murderers, Richard Matt and David Sweat, have evaded authorities since they've escaped June 6th. 
So they're out running around. Just one week after nine people were gunned down at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, worshipers returned to the historic black church to pick up where the victims left off. On Wednesday, an estimated 150 people gathered to, to resume Bible study in the basement of the church. Earlier Wednesday, the church's slain pastor and state senator Clemente Pickney's body was on public view inside the South Carolina State House. His funeral is set for Friday. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal formally announces his run for the White House. I am governor of the great state of Louisiana, and I am running for president of the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. Yay. Jindal blasted big government, vowed to repeal Obamacare. Declared that, well, we'll see what happens after the so the uh, Supreme Court said that today, and declared that radical Islam is evil and it must be destroyed. He also spoke on his leadership skills, his desire to address immigration issues, the latest count in the presidential uh, run, I guess, the contest that's going on. 13 Republicans, 4 Democrats, and 16 months to go. Lucky 13, you never there you know. Go. Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Zarnayev asked God to forgive him and apologize to the victims and survivors of his uh, terrorist attack during his appearance in front of a federal court on Wednesday, the judge sentenced Zarnayev to six or to death on six of the 30 charges he was convicted of and gave him consecutive life sentences for some of his other crimes. And finally, BJ's Restaurant, which is labeled a casual dining establishment. I love BJ's. In California? Yes. Okay. They announced Tuesday it'll give $10,000 worth of gift cards to the first parents of, in the United States who prove they have named their child Quinoa. Quinoa. It's all part of a promotion. They're adding a bunch of quinoa to the menu. You have to spell it the same. That'd be Q-U-I-N-O. Right. (laughs) N-O-A. So would you name a kid quinoa? Not for $10,000, would you? Would you label your child as this grain that's possibly a passing fad? I don't. I'm not a fan of quinoa. Do you eat quinoa? I do. You do really? Well, my wife shoves she it makes, in front of me. It. She I, puts it in things so you don't know it's I there. I cover right? it in spices and <laughs> we eat it. Um, also, you can uh, go to your Twitter account, change your first name on your Twitter account to quinoa, and they'll give you ten dollars off a thirty-five dollar mm, purchase. Not worth it. So I don't know though. If you've been to BJ's, if you've eaten their pizza, that might be worth it. Yeah. That's Love their pizza. The articles all talked about how their pizza is what you want to go for. So oh, that change, sounds great. change your Ready kid's name it. to quinoa. And we got it. Well, okay, since we're talking quinoa, probably Which not the pizza part. Could yeah. be healthy. Yeah, could be healthy. I don't know about on pizza. No, no, we're going to talk quinoa. <laughs> we're going to take a break, and up next, we're going to talk nutrition and a, a better strategy to help you feel better every day. Christy Joe Hunt of Body Buddies will be our guest, and that's coming up next on The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Kathy Aiken filling in today while Matt and his family enjoy some real quality time with their son, Jake, who just returned from his LDS mission last night. But Matt will be back tomorrow. So in this final hour, we want to talk about living a healthier lifestyle. And to give us some help on this is Christy Jo Hunt, the founder of Body Buddies. Christy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Christy, there are so many different ideas out there about nutrition, touting different ideas. Tell us about yourself and why you wanted to dive into this this really big business. It really is a big business. <laughs> uh, you know, my whole life, I was one of those people that just hyper-focused on food. 
and I wanted the body of the, all those models and magazines had out there. And I went about all these crazy, sad ways of doing it. And over the long course of time, um, my inability to maintain those, those approaches <laughs> didn't last. Mm-hmm. And in a very private life, I mean, it resulted in some binging behavior and some very disordered uh, ways of thinking about food, um, obsessions with food, exercise, etc., and it got to a very unhealthy point. And it wasn't until I was 25 that I finally decided to take this bull by the horns and figure it out. And that was about, you know, just three years ago that I just made this change. And somehow, some way, I figured out this very simple way of thinking about food and the macronutrients, getting myself away from calorie counting and the obsessiveness that's out there and found this very maintainable, balanced approach for myself. And I I ended up starting a Facebook page in 2012, and it grew. I ended up writing a book, and now my business is what it is. It's a transformation company that helps people change their view on food, on exercise, but most importantly, the way they think about themselves. So for you, quite a journey, (laughs) right? So for you, it was kind of trial and error. I take it is is three years ago. You're trying this and trying to figure out how this really works on a on you know day in day out basis. Absolutely. Uh, I, what I realized is there's so many truths in different approaches. Like there's, there's many different concepts that kept reappearing. So I thought, well, based on the scientific research, these are things that studies are finding work. So how can I bring all of this science together into a very simple day-to-day doable lifestyle for myself? And it was a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think the biggest thing was being able to classify foods um, in a way that I, I could think about them and I could hit my portion sizes. But again, getting away from the numbers, that was the, that was the danger zone for me. That's where I became very um, just obsessed. And, and when all the people I work with, when we discuss this concept, it's many of us out there that are hyper-focused on that because society hasn't had a better way to teach us other than counting calories. Right. And I think for a lot of people, it, it can be very confusing. Right? It is. It's hard. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we need people like you to t- tell us what to eat. So what are some <laughs> things, Christy, that you found that really helped you in your transformation? Was was the way you thought about yourself and food, was it an overnight change or did it take a while? Uh, well, I think we all know that nothing really can happen overnight. Um, the biggest thing I'd like people to understand is if they're trying to make a change, um, it has to start in their in the way they think about themselves, their mindset. The number one thing that my team of coaches and I work with people on changing is we have to stop looking at food as good and bad because that's what we do. You know, you look at a donut or a candy bar and you say, that's a bad food. Stay away. Bad. No. Yeah, we do that. And, and yeah, we do. And instead, we've got to change the way of thinking and say this is either strategic or non-strategic. And the only way that we can even go further and define those is having a goal. So it's not fair for ourselves if we have not defined where we're going, when, which breaks down into just knowing what, what we want in the long run, looking at ourselves and saying, what am I truly trying to accomplish? And then defining if a food will help us or if it will not help us get there instead of holding the whip like we all do mm-hmm. and uh, trying to torture ourselves or, or be rude enough to ourselves to get us to comply. That negativity I have found is not the motivating factor for most people, we need positive reinforcement. So 
I'd like to encourage people to change their their words from the good and bad to strategic or non-strategic. That's the first step. So, you know, back to your question with, yeah, absolutely, the way you think about food, that has to be the first thing because there's so many diets out there. Oh, so many. Approaches. It's a $3 trillion industry because everyone has, you see there's an emotional need for these things. Obviously, we're people who want to change. Right, right. And so, so it's a great business strategy to take one piece of that and say, here's the answer, but it's not the full puzzle. It's not the full answer. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is, again, look at what we want and change that and then step away from it and say, what is maintainable and sustainable. Once that, we can get our mind thinking, then we can go into effective nutrition and fitness strategies. Yeah, that's. That I think order. that's the key, what works for us. But Christy, I, I heard a study this week, and it said two-thirds of Americans are either overweight, overweight or obese. And that, that really shocked me. What are your thoughts on those numbers? You know, it, it goes to show, I think there's two sides of the coin. So the first side is we have to look at our food industry. And it, it, I, I think we all know that Finding healthy foods is getting harder and harder. And unless we're being proactive about providing those foods for ourselves, if we're relying on convenience, if we're relying on uh, fast food places or, or even restaurants to provide that, it's, it's not going to happen because of the regulations that are out there, the chemicals, the preservatives. Uh, sugar alone we know is, is a big culprit in this obesity as mm-hmm. well as the soda. But here's the other side that I don't think we're all uh, addressing is we live in a very high-paced world, and we're all stressed out, we're tired, hardly anyone's sleeping enough. And in that frenzied way of living, it's very difficult to step away from it, filter through balance in life and finding those approaches, that self-care, and and saying, what do I need as an individual to help me feel in control? And if we're never looking inside ourselves to say, hey, obviously I'm overloading myself, like stop. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I need to switch around some things in my schedule to sleep more so I'm not burned out and looking for sugar for energy. Right. I think the food is the, the symptom of something deeper that we need to look at our just our lifestyle, the way that we are approaching our lives every single day. If we can get focused on that as well then that's where we see huge changes in people's lives. Yeah. I, lo- I liked when you said, talked about self-care because I think in our society, sometimes we feel guilty if we take time for ourselves away from maybe our children. Um, and so that's, I think, where the balance comes in. But, you know, you talked about there's so many plans out there, Christy. If there's so many plans, why aren't we seeing results? Why aren't these people seeing results? <laughs> Oh, well, okay, a few different things. So with a lot of the diets I've analyzed, and I I could go into and talk about every single diet and approach out there that are very popular right now. And the number one thing is if we are cutting out an essential macronutrient group, and for people who aren't familiar with that word, that defines our big nutrients, our protein, our carbohydrates, and our fats. So many of these, they either kind of reduce the amount or totally eliminate a particular macronutrient, which is necessary for our health. Mm -hmm. So that in the short term, yeah, absolutely. You drop your carb, yeah, you're going to see some fast results. You know what else? You're going to plateau and you're going to have some metabolic damage unless you're really doing this wisely. Right. And so it's not maintainable. It's not sustainable. I tell people every single day, I say consistency is king. If you cannot maintain it, 
It's not going to get you anywhere. You're going to, you might see that two or three week progress and yay, hurrah, it's exciting, but you've got to take that, that long-term look. And, and we've got to say, what is something I can do every single day? Because that's, what's going to help prevent disease. That's what's going to fix our metabolism. That's what's going to make our lives and our moods, everything that comes from the food we eat, so much more enjoyable and doable. Right. Well, we're talking so, with so Christy. we just have to look at that. Right. We're talking with Christy Jo Hunt, founder of Body Buddies. So, Christy, let's talk then now. Let's get, let's get to the, uh, the crux of the problem. Let's talk about what we can eat and what we should not be eating. I, I remember years ago, going on a high carbohydrate diet. That's that was the thinking mm. back then, but that's changed. <laughs> that's changed. Talk about the carbs. Sure are has. they the are they the enemy today? Oh, you know, they're not the enemy. And what in my book, The Power of Food Lifestyle, I, I talk about how they're to be respected. So we know that carbohydrates impact our blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Especially there's there's two types of carbs. We have simple carbs, we have complex carbs. Complex carbs are they, they have more fiber. They're natural from the earth, most of them. You know, things like beans, lentils, long grain brown rice, whole grains. Uh, these are the things that are going to break down slower and not have such a dramatic impact on blood sugar. The thing we all need to realize is that the environment of the body, in other words, the blood sugar stabilization is what's critical mm-hmm. in order to help us reach a maintainable weight, feel good mentally, and absorb more nutrients. And so where we know that carbohydrates impact that, we've got a number one, two complex carbs over simple refined carbohydrates. So I know it's not super exciting for a lot of people to choose, let's say, a half cup of brown rice to eat with their lunch over two cookies. You know, they're both arguably carbs, yeah, right? Big difference, right. They have different properties. hmm so we want to start choosing those slow-digesting carbohydrates. Something else we want to be very careful about and heighten our awareness of is if we are eating a food that's going to bring that blood sugar up, then our, we're, we're putting our body in a, an absorption, a storage state. That's what insulin is a hormone that is called upon to help your body absorb that glucose that has broken down from carbohydrates. So when your body is in this storage state, you want to be careful about not putting too much energy, a.k.a. calories, in your body at that time. So what I try and help people do is if you're going to eat a carbohydrate, number one, you need to eat it with a protein, and you need to kind of limit the fat, which is the other energy nutrient, Mm -hmm. and vice versa. If you're going to go lower carbohydrate, you need to have higher fat to compensate for that energy. Okay. So I classify these in two types of milk. So how do we know how many? Well, how many? How do we know how many carbohydrates to, uh, or grams, I guess, of carbohydrates to eat a day? How do we know the right amount? Mm-hmm. That can be hard. You know, that's that's a re- that is a tough, tough question, and because there's exceptions everywhere. But the general recommendation I make for people, healthy adults trying to lose some body fat, is we have to look at, number one, where they're coming from. If they're coming from a very, very high-carbohydrate diet, a typical American, I'd say, is getting anywhere between 300 to 400 grams per day. I like to see them drop it down to about 200, maybe even 150. That's and a big that's drop. A very good, it, it, it is a big drop. Um, but surprisingly enough, after about three or four days, um, people feel amazing. And they, they have enough energy. It's plenty of glucose for the brain to function and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I really found the great balance point for most women is between 100 to 150 grams of carbs and for men around 180 to 250. 
and that's where they they maintain they they drop body fat they're putting on lean muscle tissue they feel great so, so again exceptions always apply but those right. are average sure now i know you you your recommendation is to eat protein with every meal tell us why protein's important and give us some give us some ideas of what kind of protein you're talking about sure well protein in, in many academic studies shows that it helps us to feel fuller longer it breaks down into a lot of individual amino acids, which help fuel so many different bodily processes. And so with the protein helping us feel fuller longer and contributing to so much, keeping it at every single meal also contributes to blood sugar stabilization. I like to call it anchoring. And so if we have that as a backbone as well as vegetable, so that at every single meal, then that will give us a little bit of that extra edge when we're dealing with sugar cravings. Mm-hmm. When we are having a hard time controlling ourselves, which for many people out there, sugar addiction is a real thing. That is tough. But you're going to really, you're going to face it head on if you start putting some protein throughout the day. So some of those recommendations, uh, you know, chicken breast, uh, lean fish, Egg white, that's a, that's a tough one for people because we know eggs are protein. And while, well, yes, there is protein in the egg yolk, mm-hmm. I classify that more as a fat. So we use that in, in that regard. But uh, a lot of different types of fish and tofu for our, our vegans and vegetarians out there. How about cottage for cheese? Tea. Absolutely. We do have our dairy sources, cottage cheese. I do recommend people have the 2%, not the fat-free, as well as plain Greek yogurt, which flip over that sugar label. Some of them are pretty deceiving. They'll still have a pretty high sugar content. Again, that that sugar is everything. Keeping that down so we can stabilize the blood sugar. Yeah, and reading those Uh, labels so we make sure we don't have too much. Well, Christy, great advice. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, Christy Joe will have some advice for parents of overweight children. How can we help them eat healthier? We'll talk about emotional eating and who doesn't fall into that category, and how can we stay on course when we eat out a lot? We're talking nutrition, and you're listening to The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Show. I'm Kathy Aiken filling in for Matt. He'll be back here first thing tomorrow morning. Right now we're talking with Christy Jo Hunt, founder of Body Buddies, a woman who had her own struggles with weight and decided not only to help herself but to try to figure this out and help others in their quest to eat a healthier diet. Christy, let's talk about emotional eating. I think we've all done this. You know, we come home, we've had a bad day, someone said something hurtful to us, and what do we do? We head to the cupboard. And before we know it, we've eaten an entire bag of potato chips. How do we stop that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, it really, it's a lot. It takes a lot for a person to step away from it and truly look inside and, and do some introspection. Um, many people, it's a mindless thing. It's such a, a deeply ingrained habit right. that um, they've got to set themselves up for success. by number one, get that kind of stuff out of your house. That's the first There step. you go. Uh, secondly, you know, we really have to take control of our emotions. What I like to help people understand is behavior comes from emotions. Emotions come from thoughts and thoughts come from an event. The thing is we can't change events in our lives. We can't change the fact that we're going to have bad days, people offend us, we're going to be sad, any of those things. But then a thought comes in 
And for most people, I think, you know, it's normal to have a negative thought, but that is the game changer right there because we do have the power to reframe our thoughts and flip it around into a positive thought because what happens if we don't? If we think negatively and and you think, well, I'm just a, a loser or I must be so awful or something, then that immediately leads to the emotion and the emotion is tied to the behavior because that's where we get that that feel good emotion from what right. we're eating. Yeah, and then so we end up we end up binging. You know, yeah, we you eat and eat and eat and you wonder why you can't stop. And at that point, chemicals have taken over in your brain. A lot of these foods are so chemically engineered to satisfy our taste buds, and we have oversaturated taste buds with the way our food industry is. Right. Well, tell so people can begin to break that. Okay. Their tell us how if if we have an overweight child. Um, how do we how do we help them? I mean, does this is this a diet for everybody, or is it just more in the adults? Or how can we help the, those that are younger? Yeah, and that's that's a great question because the way I look at this is it's actually more of a lifestyle. I, I don't like uh, anybody to use that word diet uh, because it's simply principles that we should adapt into our lives as we're able. So for these types of parents, the first thing I need you to understand is you've got to set an example. Um, you can't expect your children to do something you're not. So it often starts with your own habits and involving more vegetables in your foods and, and choosing some lean proteins and, and reducing the amount of, of manufactured and processed foods. Mm-hmm. But secondly, this is a tough one for many parents because they, they kind of feel it's their responsibility to make their kids comply and be disciplined. And so they, they remove all of these tempting foods from the home. And what happens is then these kids, they go to school. They're not in that environment all the time. Right. And it becomes this form of rebellion. Yeah, they and want it. When, yeah. You know, yes, absolutely. So I would say don't deprive the child and, and do, never, never shame. I see a lot of that happen. Um, and you've just got to, you know, if you feel like talking about it is a great thing, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the positive reinforcement, setting goals together and coming up with a reward system, whether it's a family drink your water sheet that sits on the counter, everyone has a goal for the week, or, you know, how many vegetables do you eat a day? But I think some of those family goal sheets can be very helpful in rewarding better behavior, not about perfection. I don't believe in such a thing, but but just doing better in each family, if they can look at that, will help those those children make better choices eventually. I'm glad you said that about perfection, because I think that that hurts so many people in our society when they see these magazine covers or how, how they think society thinks we should look. And I think that that's very hurtful. Oh, yeah. We only have a few minutes left, Christy. Quickly, how can we say we're always so busy, as, as we've discussed earlier. We want to go through the drive through How do we eat an, elf, an healthy diet when, you know, that seems like the only thing we have, have to do is go through the drive through and get something quickly? Sure. And, and, you know, that does happen. And so I like to help people learn that you can order strategically. And it does take some learning. But the first thing you want to look for is what meals available have more of a lean protein. So we want to choose grilled chicken over a fried chicken. Or we want to go for, it's, it's not that salads are any better, but you look at the volume um, it's going to help you feel more full. It's going to give you a little bit more nutrients and vitamins. And the dressing, and, that, uh, that can hurt you, right? Too much yeah. dressing or getting yeah, a really fat dressing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and mostly it's sugar is in those, those dressings, the sugars and the fat. So we, we just want to watch out for those. Um, try using salsa. Um, when people go to Cafe Rio, I encourage them to don't get the house dressing. And I love Cafe Rio as much as anybody else. But um, as for that, uh, what is it, the pico? Pico, pico de gallo, de gallo. uh-huh. Like Just put, put that on yeah. instead. That's a great idea. I like yeah, that. 
a little bit of moisture, so fresh salsas at home. But if you are out and about, getting the salsa instead of the dressing, those little changes, you know, you may not see that change overnight, but over the long run, that's where you're going to see some big time changes. So it's, it's awareness again and, and not choosing the, well, I can't choose something perfect, so I'm just going to order a burger and fries. Mm-hmm. you got to get past that mindset of right. all or nothing. Right. That's where a lot of this is going to make a difference. Real quickly, when you're looking at the sugar grounds on the back, I had a son come home from the health food store and he thought he had this really healthy smoothie. I turned it over and looked and there was like 30 mm-hmm. grams of sugar and I said to him, <laughs> you might as well just be drinking a Coca-Cola or something because that's, that's, you're going to get yeah. the same amount. What What is the gram what's the what do you think the peak grams of sugar we should be looking for oh that's you know that happens a lot we think we're doing something great for our health i I like to encourage people five to ten grams over ten grams that red flag goes up like "Hmm, am i willing to throw off this environment in my body and that can help us make some much wiser decisions okay five to ten is our is our danger zone. Watch out for that. Right. Obviously, Christy, we've been talking nutrition and transformation, and, and you can't do it without exercise. I mean, that, that has to go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, doctor's recommendations are a typical 30 minutes of cardiovascular activity four to five times per week, and, and that's a baseline function. I think that's a great goal for a lot of us to get to, especially if, if many people out there aren't currently doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the key thing is we need to see about an 800 to 1,200 calorie deficit per day. So we need to create that deficit through the foods we eat as well as the output of energy through exercise. Uh, the 800 to 1200, if we're really looking to lose some body fat, is is a very maintainable, doable um, way and approach to healthily help someone lose one to three pounds per week of body fat. And I, I like to say lose fat, not lose weight. There's a big difference there. There is a big so, difference. Yeah, I'd like to encourage. Yeah, everyone get get that cardiovascular activity in there. It's it's big. Okay, Christy. Final 15 seconds. If there's one takeaway for the listeners today, what would it be? Mm, just break it down and, and remember you can do it. Take it one meal, one workout, and one day at a time. Don't look at the big picture. Minimize, compartmentalize, and believe you can do it. And give us your website if people want to learn more. Absolutely. www.body-buddies.com. Okay, Christy Joe Hunt, founder of Body Buddies, giving us some really some great advice on how to live a healthier lifestyle. Now the key, getting off the couch and starting. One step at a time, even if they're baby steps like she talked about. At least you're moving. Up next, we'll talk to Sports Nation and the gurus Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan. A very busy day for those guys yesterday at BYU Media Day. We'll find out if they've recovered and what was the big takeaway from them yesterday. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. I can picture Matt running up the stairs with his arms up in the air. Woo! Time to talk to Sports Nation now. Spencer Litton and Jerem Jordan. Busy day for you guys yesterday. Have you guys recovered? Every day is busy here. In I Lubbock. know. It's it so hard. Touch, tough life there, Jerem. 
Yeah. Yeah. Kathy, Kathy just, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, I'm just I'm just feeling pumped up one that we get to talk to you and that, that yeah. you brought in the Rocky music. I know. Well actually that wasn't me. I wish that was my idea. You know, I'm coming in yesterday, I'm seeing the big huge BYU TV truck and your mugs right there. Huge. I mean, <laughs> what do you guys think when you see that? I think, wow, our images are bigger than Taysom Hills for I some know. reason. Why is that? Wow, you guys That's are just so popular. That is up. amazing. Well, here's the funny it's thing. Bronco Mendenhall took the right a picture people. of uh, he took a picture of Big Blue mm-hmm. and strategically placed the tree that he was standing behind so that our faces would not show <laughs> in that picture. I heard about that. That was probably pretty <laughs> smart. I don't know. What do your wives think of that when they see that truck going, hey, that's my husband? My, wife's, my wife is my number one, like, pull, like, pull me down to reality. Person, yeah, that's good. Which I try and hang in reality most of the time, but <laughs> it's like, okay, what else? Yeah. So how was it yesterday? What was your biggest takeaway from talking to, you know, former players, current players, Bronco? What did you take away from it? The aggression of BYU and Bronco Mendenhall in in going after Power 5 inclusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been a drastic change in mentality over the past couple of years. When you look at the status of independence, it was, you know, viable and sustainable just a few years ago. And now it's, look, we have have got to move. We are hunting our way into the Power 5 is is what I took away yesterday. He used that verb, Kathy. He used used the verb hunt. I heard that. We are on the hunt. Yeah. Well, you look at their schedule, you know, in the next few years, it's, that is Power 5. I mean, that's, that's big. It's a Power 5 schedule. It the is. question is, can they win enough in that Power 5 schedule to get noticed? Yep, Scheduling is the first challenge. Remember the first few years of independence? Mm-hmm. It was, can BYU schedule tough enough? And right. then the complaint was November home games. BYU's not going to have good November home games. It's the nature of being an independent in its yeah. scheduling. Yeah, who wants to play them? Exactly. Who's, yes, BYU's never going to have great November home games. I'm sorry. You might get one, maybe. Utah State, if you count that. Mm-hmm. Utah maybe in the future, right? Right. But now the, now the conversation is, okay, BYU's scheduling tougher. They're getting better home games. They're going to play uh, UCLA and Mississippi State at home next season. Right. Michigan State's coming to Provo in the future. You have Stanford and USC. So that's nice. But can BYU go and win some games on the road? That is so tough for anyone to do. But BYU is going to have to do it to maintain any kind of relevance. And 8-5 and five will not no. do that. Yep, you're right. You're right. Great point. So I heard Taysom Hill yesterday, obviously coming off the second straight knee or leg injury. He talked about running smarter. Do you guys think that's going to happen? You know, I, he was very candid with this when we talked to him on BYU Sports Nation. And, and it was, he said... I'm a quarterback first. Of course I want to I throw the ball more. But he also alluded to that if, if we're down by the goal line and then we're on the two-yard line, right. like I'm not throwing the ball. Like right. if, if there's a hole and I need to duck my shoulder, I'm going to run the ball. So, But he said he would rather pass. He, would, right. he said he would rather, yeah. but who knows? I mean, it's, it's, it's an innate tendency that he has because he's so good right. running the football. Well, and I think, too, you know, when he figured this is his last year and he wants to play in the NFL and he's had two straight injuries, you, you got to change something, don't you think? A little it's bit? It's interesting because his strength is his ability to run it the is, ball. It is, yes. I, I think he's the best running back that's thrown the ball at BYU ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's a good quarterback, but he is an elite runner. He's yeah, absolutely. really, really good. Right. I think the best BYU's ever had athletically. So what do you do to change? I thought he was pretty smart last year. I, I agree with Spencer. That it's just unfortunate that two of the three years he gets hurt. So the idea is that he's injury prone. I think that he exerts himself with such force that he is in higher risk situations. And hopefully 
2013 can be 2015 in that he played all 13 games, and I thought that BYU did go eight and five, mm-hmm. but at one point they were six and two, coming off a 17 point win against Boise State going into November. They play Wisconsin, Notre Dame, Washington. They drop three of five, and it ends kind of sour. Right. But but if Taysom Hill is healthy, Spencer has been strongly opinionated on this. He thinks BYU will win 10 games. I think BYU will be in a position to win nine or maybe 10 if Taysom Hill is healthy. And that's saying a lot because that's a really tough schedule. Yeah, Taysom and Jamal. And Jamal, they both have to stay healthy. And their yeah. defense, I, I, it was interesting when Bronco talked about, what, 14 deep on the defense. So that's got to be a concern. What's on the program today, guys? Well, just that very topic, the the aggressive approach to what BYU football is trying to do and the juxtaposition of, you know, what was said two years ago at Media Day to what was said yesterday. And it is it is a drastic change. It's almost like they've done a 180. And uh, now Bronco was, went as far as saying, like, look, I've done the research. He brought up specific financial numbers of what the SEC teams were getting per school. And so it it's become clear to us that, there is some desperation mode here, and uh, what does BYU do in that desperation mode to try and become uh, a team that Power 5 conferences cannot overlook when another shift happens in college football, and we're all assuming that at some point another major shift will happen. Right. Well, that's interesting. That will be a great program. Thanks, you guys. Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan. Be looking for their mugs on the big BYU truck. <laughs> yeah. You know, you guys know you have the dream job about every BYU fan, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we know. We yeah. know. That's yeah. why you need to stay humble. We don't take it for granted. <laughs> I know you Absolutely. don't. We do not take I it know for you granted. don't. Hey, it's great to talk to you guys. Have a great show. Thanks, Thanks Kathy. Okay. Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan coming up right after this program on Sports Nation. And Terry, you got a few more things for us? Yeah. Kind of a change of, uh, of change. direction here. Okay. I was going to go with some stories that are kind of goofy and weird, but mm-hmm. this one kind of ticked me off. Over the last few days, uh, states have been rushing to take down the Confederate flag. Very much so. Alabama, their governor, looked through whatever laws they have, didn't see anything conflicting with his desire, and he sent out some maintenance guy at 8 o'clock uh, Wednesday morning. They just took the flag down. Took it down. No big deal. In South Carolina, though, they're, 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 they're going to debate it later yes. in the summer. Why, why, why does it have to take so long? It's how their, their process works. Yeah. They, they put up certain laws around it so that there, there can't just be some sort of action like the governor of Alabama mm-hmm. did. And so it'll probably end up coming down, being put off into a more of a historic area rather than next to the Capitol. The real issue is if it's on a state capital ground, then the state is endorsing the flag. And right. then what's the message they're sending with that flag? And I think I think if I read right, two-thirds have to yes. pass it. And can you imagine any of them voting against it if yes. they want re-election? There was people speaking up against Those in the house? taking really? it down, yes. Okay. I saw some footage on the uh, random news channels I'm watching that there were people in the South Carolina House and the Senate speaking in favor of keeping the flag mm. for its historic roots and what it means to their community. Yeah, it's a really polarizing issue for sure. Now, I found this. It seems like we got stores taking them out now. Mm -hmm. Walmart, Amazon, a bunch of flag companies are saying they're not going to make those flags anymore. Now it appears that Apple has decided to join them by pulling many Civil War games from the App Store. As of the writing of the story, games like Ultimate General Gettysburg and some other games uh, are nowhere to be found. Apple is famous for reaching for the axe rather than the scalpel when it comes to some of these games and different apps that are on their on their store. Uh, and they're saying it's, it's depicting – they took down a game in uh, – previously it was a, a game about 1942, World War II tank battles, and it depicted Russians and Germans as the enemies of the 
allied forces in the game. So it's historically correct, right. but they didn't like the idea that these other people are now the enemies, so we're going to mm-hmm. take that game down. Now, what, what's the thing? We, you and I talked about this yesterday. Dukes of Hazard, yes. they're like not selling the car anymore? They, they've stopped. Their, they, Warner Brothers had a licensing agreement with a company, and they told them to stop making any products with that flag on it. Wow. So they're going to stop making the car because that's the that's the car. Is mm-hmm. this uh, that was like the main symbol of that car was the was that flag on the top. So the problem with this though is there's historical context in these different games. As you're talking about Gettysburg, the flag was there. This was kind of a, a point. You know, it was a, a key part of the history of what was going on there. And now they're taking these games away and these because of that flag. And and so there's the argument of is it offensive or is there historical context in the sense that this game is depicting a historical period of our country's right. history? Yeah. Two complete different sides. So, huh? but the thing is, they're not only talking about taking the flag down; they're yeah. talking about any monument. Yes. Of anybody that had anything to do right. with and that. Minnesota is looking to rename a uh, what, the Lake Calhoun. It's named after a Civil War general. They want to take that away. Uh, the, but what the U.S. military was asked about many, many bases that are named after Civil War generals. Wow! And, and they're they like, no, those? that's an individual. This isn't. We're not talking about you know the the bigger uh, historical, I guess, stories behind them all. We're talking about these individuals and the fact that they served and they were part of our our history and our country. Wow! And so, I wonder it, if this is just the beginning. Is it going to keep going? At what point do you have to stop? Right. Basically, separating ourselves from this part of history that that is negative, mm-hmm. but it's part of our history. Right. There's a point where I, I understand, take it down, put it away. But at the same time, you do have to recognize it existed. Yeah. It'll and be interesting really to see how they there. vote down there in the South. That will be interesting. Now for the goofball stuff. Okay, the goofy. This is the stuff I like. World record for the longest pizza has been snapped up in Italy with a 1.5-kilometer pizza. Which in- is? 0.93 miles, so almost a mile long I'm not good pizza. At breaking that down. Yeah, okay. I used Google. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, I, don't know. I love Google. The recipe for the culinary masterpiece, which could be debatable. Mm-hmm. Pizza that big? At some point, there's Something's it, it just degrades in taste yeah. when it gets that big. Yeah. It's just 33, what, 3,300 pounds of tomatoes. Wow. Gallons of extra virgin olive oil and more than one and a half tons of mozzarella. I was going to say, how much cheese? Yeah. How about sauce? Uh, that was the. 333 pounds oh, the tomatoes. Of, or the, okay. the 33,000 pounds or 3,300 pounds of tomatoes. That was so, the tomatoes, not the tomato sauce. That's okay. just, yeah, they, they're, it's authentic. It's Italy. Yeah. It's not here where I'm it's in a can I'm glad we're talking about this now, not when Christy, she would have said, <laughs> right. uh, don't touch it. it. The pizza sat along more than 800 tables, was cooked and designed in a, uh, it was cooked in a uh, oven designed by 80 chefs. They were brought in to cook it, but the, in pieces. Yeah, you I was going to say, do, yeah, pieces can't do a mile long long pizza. Wow, that would take, take forever. forever. So that first piece is ice cold by the time you get the previous record was 1.1 kilometers, which would be just under, again, under a mile. Okay. The dish took three minutes per meter to cook and had to be made in five ovens, which were specially adopted for the task. All I know, I love pizza. And then they I had a huge party day. and all these people yeah. ate it at this huge expo they were having in Italy. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. That would be my cheat meal. Yes. Because Christy, I know she allows one cheat meal a week. I, I have more than one, but that would be my cheat meal, <laughs> would be pizza. I love bread. Anything bready. Has got to do with that. Thank you, Terry South, for the goofy stuff. Appreciate it. Well, that will do it for us today on the Matt Townsend Show. Matt will be back in the big chair tomorrow morning, bright and early. And again, Matt, we hope you're having a great time as your son Jake just got off his mission last night. Until then, have a great day, everyone. You're listening to BYU Radio.